Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, and welcome to episode 157. This is a special episode. To what extent should we make AI able to feel? That is the topic of my new TEDx talk, which has just come out with the title Empathetic AI, Unlocking Trust Between Humans and Machines. You can find it on TED.com and YouTube, and there's a link in the show notes and transcript. It's produced at the Royal Roads University site, thanks to an amazing team there. So many people, I can't name them all. I'd better not try and name just some, because then I would leave out too many people that did incredible work in putting together an amazing event that had fantastic production values, and one which I also ended up being the head speaking coach for. In an amusing, and by now very familiar, type of story, the TEDx organizers emailed me to say that they had turned my bio into a short, snappy version for the market they wanted, and would I take a look at it? I said, looks perfect. Maybe you want to stick a mention of chat GPT in there for a search optimization? And they said, oh, we got chat GPT to write that version. And so they just asked it to add an appropriate mention of itself. And it did again, as well as I could have. In fact, here's the description of the talk that ChatGPT wrote. And it is the only ChatGPT-written portion of this podcast. Explore the captivating intersection of artificial intelligence, empathy, and human experience in this TED Talk. Delve into the fascinating history of AI from Eliza to Wobot, and ponder the implications of AI's potential sentience. Peter Scott highlights the need to bridge the gap between technology and the humanities, suggesting that the future of AI lies in its capacity for compassion. This talk will empower and inspire you to consider the potential of AI as a true companion, one that is not only intelligent, but also emotionally attuned to the human experience. End quote. And again, I did not try improving on that, but that is the last AI-generated content of this episode. You know, there's something about giving a TEDx talk. It's like writing a book. A while after doing it, you forget how much agony it was, and you think, you know what? That wasn't so bad. Let's do it again. And so I did. This is my third talk now on TED.com. It stands on its own, of course, but that 12 minutes of time is one that we can expand on here in sort of a director's cut, a DVD commentary, if you will, a bonus track. By the way, if you're thinking, 12 minutes? I thought it was 18. Well, it used to be for TED Talks, but now the standard is 12 minutes maximum, give or take. And, yep, you guessed it, that is thanks to shrinking attention spans. So I'm going to go through that talk here. And our incredible sound editor, Lee, is going to add some auditorium 
type atmospherics so you can tell which parts of the talk. And then everything else in the voice I'm in now is going to be the commentary on it. Let's get into it. One day in 1966, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, an administrative assistant, whose name has been lost to history, let's call her Maggie Smith, asked her boss to leave the room while she shared some personal matters with a new friend. What made this request legendary was that her new confidant was a computer program written by her boss, Professor Joseph Weizenbaum, and Maggie interacted with it via a keyboard. The program was called ELIZA, and Weizenbaum wrote it to imitate a Rogerian psychotherapist. Okay, so this is a story that many of you will have heard before, particularly if you've been doing computer programming for a while. The story of ELIZA is, as I said, legendary. And I have to tell you, I really wanted to name that assistant. You may have heard this legend before, and indeed, you heard no name associated with her. I did an extraordinary amount of research to try and find that name. I went through Weizenbaum's papers in the MIT Media Lab archives, those that aren't sealed for the next few decades for some reason. I talked to one of his daughters. He has passed on, as many of his contemporaries have too. I talked to numerous people who were on staff at the time, and there were plenty of kind of leads, like, well, I think it's this person, but nothing solid enough to be able to put a name out there and defend it. So Maggie Smith is who she is for this talk. Now, in the process of going through the MIT archives, I came across the source code for Eliza, and I made a copy of it, and I printed it out, and I actually showed that in the part of the talk that's coming up now. It wasn't as complicated as you might think. In fact, here's the whole thing. It spends most of its time saying some version of, tell me more about that. Of course, Smith knew it wasn't alive, conscious, or a good therapist, but it was fit for her purpose of unburdening herself, seeing a reflection of her words, much as someone might relate their problems to their cat. Cat and Eliza are both good listeners. So the Eliza program is, of course, extremely simple by today's standards. It looks for patterns. It looks, for instance, for a pattern like you typing something that says, my fill-in-the-blank happened. Maybe you say, my boss is mad at me. And then later on, it will say, earlier you said, your boss is mad at you. Tell me more about that. The real lesson here is that, as primitive as this is, it was nevertheless of some value to this administrative assistant and others, this is documented, in providing this reflection. By the way, it unnerved Weizenbaum enough that he actually stopped people from using it because he thought this was unhealthy. And this is a pattern that we see repeated over and over in AI, that an expert human performs some task that requires a great deal of training and skill, in this case, conversational therapy. And yet an AI is able to replicate a shockingly large proportion of that without doing anything of the sort, just by manipulating patterns. And that turns out to be useful. And even today, even more so as we go on. 
Today, a distant descendant of Eliza, very distant, a commercial application called Wobot has actual demonstrable mental health benefit, and the company is valued at half a billion dollars. It's not marketed as a replacement for therapy, but as a competent sounding board, particularly useful at 3 a.m. when your therapist has other things to do. No one claims that Wobot or any other artificial intelligence understands anything you tell it. It's just rather good at fabricating responses that match a pattern that we recognize as conversation. Unfortunately, we don't have useful ways of telling whether something really is understanding or feeling. So having said that we're not going to be talking about understanding, we're starting to get into the main topic, the main theme of this talk. It's about feeling. All the conversation around artificial intelligence has understandably, being around intelligence, which is thinking. But what about feeling? And that's going to have a very important place in this talk. Most of the time, we don't have very high standards for reacting as though an entity is capable of feeling. A teddy bear clears that bar. Our species is called Homo sapiens, but maybe what we really are is sappy. Sapience, by the way, is the ability to think. The ability to feel is called sentience. And in 2022, there was a furor when a Google engineer claimed that their conversational AI called Lambda had become sentient. Very few people agreed with him, and Google fired him. So that's a reference there to Blake Lemoyne, who we have mentioned plenty of times on this podcast, and I didn't feel it was necessary to name him in this talk because... I think that if Google had been as open with Lambda as OpenAI was with ChatGPT and let that many people try it out, Lemoyne would not have gone out there and said, this thing is sentient, because there would have been so many other people experiencing the same types of conversation that led him to that conclusion, but not saying what he did, that he would have thought, well, maybe that's not what it means. But because Google, out of an abundance of caution, had restricted the access to Lambda to a few people, and he was one who had these extraordinary interactions with it, that was really one of the first exposures of someone to the performance of that type of large language model, and it had this deep impact on him. So, here in the talk, I'm pointing out that there are ways to get us to have an emotional reaction to an inanimate thing fairly easily, and also drawing this key distinction between thinking and feeling. AI is not designed to be sentient, and actually, that's starting to cause a problem. Do you know how much AI already affects your life? It's already being used to make important decisions like whether you should get a loan, be accepted to university, or how much to pay on your insurance claim. Decisions that we have strong feelings about. Now, Make no mistake, the AIs are as good as and usually better than people at making those decisions. Measurably, provably so. They are that smart. So it is inevitable that their use will become widespread. So here I'm opening up a key debate for our future with AI. Regardless of whether AI eventually becomes sentient or whether it should, we're going to have a strong reaction to its power to make decisions over our lives in matters that we have emotional attachment to. There's a lot packed into a few sentences here, 
the fact that AI is getting good at making decisions, like whether people should get a loan or how much to pay on an insurance claim, does mean that it's inevitable that we will use AI to make those kinds of decisions more and more. It makes economic sense. It makes ethical sense. But these decisions affect people's lives. When we're on the receiving end of a decision like that, if it's unfavorable to us, we want an explanation. Why did it do that? And as we've heard on the show, that's extraordinarily hard for an AI to come up with. But we have heard people tell us that there's a lot of work being done in how to get AI to come up with those explanations because it's so important. But there's an old saying that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. The problem is that AI doesn't and can't care. It's artificial intelligence, not artificial empathy. How can we trust it with a decision like a terminal medical diagnosis if it has never lived? We're heading towards more and more frustration and anxiety as we give AI more and more power to make decisions that we want to be under the control of a human who can understand and empathize with us. AI can do neither. At the moment. So, should it? So there is as they say, the $64 million question, which is about how much it costs to train those large language models these days. Are we ever going to be able to trust an AI that can't feel? I suggest that all or nearly all of the fear around what AI might do in the future when it has enough power stems from the fact that it doesn't have feelings. Why do I say that? If you think about the negative scenarios like the paperclip maximizer or Stuart Russell's story about the robot that needs to make dinner for the family and ends up cooking the family cat, these hypothetical incidents might arise because we didn't give the AI enough of an ethical and moral grounding to realize that those are decisions that we wouldn't want it to make. Yet we know that we could never think of everything that it should and especially shouldn't do. This in AI is called the value alignment problem. It's the same story as the legend of King Midas. Genies and AIs do not have empathy for us and so make decisions that can be literal but harmful. But if AI had empathy, or if we felt that it had empathy, then I suggest that could make up for that shortfall. And now, as my friend Dan said when I came out with this, with some dry humor, he said, I'm going to have to go back to my car now and wonder whether I should worry about the fact that its anti-lock braking system doesn't have empathy. Well played, Dan, made me think. But there's a difference. The ABS is not making a moral decision. It's a numeric one. Is the wheel slipping or not? It's not deciding whether or not to brake the car depending on whether there's a hedgehog or a person in the road ahead of it. And I submit that that's a key difference. It's the same reason that we don't worry about whether an elevator might suddenly decide to plunge us to our deaths. It's too simple an organism. So having opened this can of worms, let's scoop out the contents. Right now we have no idea how to do that. If you want to make a computer scientist uncomfortable, ask them how AI could feel. And yet, the goal of AI has always been to create a companion. In 1956, a year after the term artificial intelligence was coined, its leading scientists gathered in New Hampshire to 
quote, find how to make machines use language, form abstractions and concepts, solve the kinds of problems now reserved for humans, and improve themselves, end quote. By the way, they thought they would knock that off in two months. And in 1981, the Japanese proposed a fifth-generation computing project that would, quote, approach the intelligence of a human being. Neither of these efforts succeeded. But ever since then, we've periodically revisited the belief that we're on the verge of creating a computer version of ourselves. So that observation about computer scientists was born from my direct experience that if you start asking them about AI and feelings, they do get uncomfortable. They haven't thought about it, or they would rather not. Most of them got into this field because they're more comfortable with thinking than feeling, which is unquantifiable. So they feel a lot safer dealing with things to do with pure logic. And yet, if we go back to the origins of AI, it's always had these grand visions that ultimately it would be something on our level that we could converse with and relate to. Even Alan Turing, back in the 40s and early 50s, was thinking along these lines. I guess if we can't find intelligent life on other planets, then by golly, let's make our own. Maybe, like Maggie, we're just looking for someone to talk with. Which is ironic, considering how we're talking with each other less and less. In 1959, C.P. Snow wrote about what he called the two cultures, science and the humanities and a growing divide in our society as people in each culture find the other increasingly alien. Well, the gap between science and the humanities, between technology and psychology, between thinking and feeling, is never more visible than when we look at AI research. Because that's where we are building something to do jobs where it needs to think like a human, but which we won't fully trust until it feels like a human. So here I'm coming back to a familiar theme of mine and this podcast and my writings and my TEDx talks, that it's the gap between our collective heads and hearts, between thinking and feeling, that needs to be closed for us to ultimately get along with AI as it becomes more and more intelligent. And I'm going to explore here how that gap in our society is one that's creating AI that is not as aligned with our values and our emotions as it needs to be. That AI research is undergoing an incredible expansion right now as its developers create amazing new tools like ChatGPT that often surprise even themselves. And this is so exciting that it's easy to lose sight of the rest of the world. I've told technology conferences, in your passion to build advanced AI, it's easy to forget that the people outside your bubble feel powerless over it. They feel like they're in the backseat of a car being driven 100 miles an hour by a teenager who's texting their friends, chugging a Red Bull and turning around to yell, I have no idea where we're going, but isn't it fun? So this is something that I have explored, recognizing the differences between the technology kind of audiences that I have spoken to and the non-technical audiences that I have, that the difference between them is that the technologists feel much more in charge of where we're going. And they don't realize that the people who are not developing the technology are feeling such dread over it. And it's not necessarily that the technologists have that any more knowledge about where things are going than the non-technical people. But that because they are, in this sense, in the driver's seat, 
they feel that wherever they end up, even if they have not been there before and don't know what the map looks like to get there, that they have somehow directed the journey. Those of us on the outside of the bubble lack agency. And despite all those fears about AI taking over the world, that won't happen because AI lacks agency too. It doesn't have goals like we do. We judge people by their goals and intentions, their morals, what's on the inside. But we judge machines by their actions, what's on the outside. Because there's nothing on the inside of a machine. Yet, for it to have a true intention, it would have to feel that it wanted it. But until it has true intentions, we will always feel unsafe, fearing that AI could accidentally harm us because it has no moral compass, only the imperfect and incomplete rules that our minds can think of. So there's a lot going on there. This distinction that we judge people by their intentions, but we judge machines by their actions, is one that was made by Cesar Hidalgo. I've expanded it here to observe that it's a difference between what we see on the outside versus what's going on in the inside. And to hint at a huge philosophical debate about whether there's anything going on on the inside of a machine... We take it for granted that there's something going on on the insides of people. We feel like there's something going on in the inside of us. But how can you prove that there's something going on on the inside of anyone else? That's been a very elevated philosophical debate restricted to philosophers for a very long time. But now it's going to become important to explore that in the context of how do we know whether an AI is conscious or feeling. Because... As it develops and becomes more capable, it will produce an imitation of that. And how do we know whether it's the real thing? And then the distinction that I draw about intentions versus true intentions is that we could infer the intention of some object other than ourselves by what does it achieve or what does it look like it's heading towards. But our intentions are a matter of what we have on the inside, which is a matter of do we want it? Now... This is where we're getting into really uncomfortable territory, right? Because I'm suggesting that we need to give AI desire as a part of empathy. And what if what it desires is something that's not good for us? I'll address those thoughts shortly in the talk. But the people who could teach AI how to feel are on the other side of the culture gap from the ones who are building it. AI is where the two cultures must come together if we are to coexist with it. Because how will we live in a world where computers have become super-intelligent if they're not also super-compassionate? And there you've got it. There you've got the essential message of this talk. It may be a very long way off, but if we don't extinguish ourselves through some other means first, eventually AI will approach this place where the only way that we're going to be able to feel comfortable with it is if it has compassion. This talk straddles many time frames at the same time. It's a bit like rotating a gem. Sometimes you can see through it all the way to a future that's an indefinite way off. And sometimes it reflects right back to where you are right now. Where do we set the bar for deciding that a machine is sentient? No one believed it of Eliza. One person believed it of Lambda. But at the current rate of development, it won't be long before there will be an AI of which enough people believe it that there will be debate, made all the more intense by the fact that its creators didn't intend any sentience. Yet when it comes to AI making pivotal decisions about our lives, we set the bar very high. 
we will not feel truly safe until we have made AI that is, beyond all debate, feeling. Okay, so we're building towards something very important coming up in a moment. Now, regardless of whether we make AI that anyone is sure is sentient, it's going to become an acute debate quite soon as to how we should be able to tell, because there will be AI that is producing a convincing impression, a convincing imitation of consciousness, sentience, and yet it'll become apparent that we don't have the means to tell whether or not it really is. We can't tell the difference between an imitation and the real thing. In the early days of that debate, it won't be hard to resolve because the people who created the AI will say, look, here's how it works. We're certain that there's no sentience there. We know every line of code. But the more time goes by, the more complicated it gets. If the code was developed, especially by AI, like ChatGPT itself, the more the question will come up, is this really conscious? And the development of this talk spanned the introduction of ChatGPT. It's become, I think, far more apparent in the last few months that from what it and its successors can do, that this question of how AI could provide a convincing imitation of feeling, of conversation, of humanity, is a lot closer than we had thought it would be a year ago. We've probably all seen people having conversations with ChatGPT where they forget that it's a machine and relate to it like a person. Maybe you've had such conversations. But if ChatGPT was in charge of decisions like whether you should get into college, whether you should get cancer treatment, we're going to hold it to a very high standard. We're going to insist on there being undeniable evidence of empathy. And that is going to lead us to this conclusion. But even that won't be enough. There are people we don't unburden ourselves to because they've always had it so easy they can't relate to our pain. They're like today's computers running through a script. Oh, your father is dying. That must feel terrible. We only really trust people that have walked a mile in our shoes, who have suffered. And so to cross that final bridge to become our true companion, AI will have to be able to suffer. And the people who taught it how to feel will have to ensure that it does suffer. That could be the greatest responsibility anyone will have ever faced. It may sound like the height of hubris, cruelty, and recklessness even to contemplate such a thing, and yet how else can we ensure that our new companion gains the compassion it must have? If we look far enough into the future, this is our destiny. All right, deep breath. A lot going on in that part. I used an example to show why an entity needs to have suffered in order for us to feel that it has true empathy. And that leads to only one possible conclusion. Not only will that AI have to be capable of suffering, but that would be pointless unless it also does experience suffering. Now, there have been times in the past when I've given talks about AI and people have talked about the development of thinking machines and said, isn't this playing God? And I've said, no, this is making smarter versions of calculators. But if any act ever deserved to be labeled as playing God, then this one is it. Of course, this is contentious in so many ways. The idea that we could even do it 
is extremely debatable at best. So to think that it is possible is to impute a level of capability on our part that is not currently warranted. That's the hubris part. Recklessness is that it's clear that if we give AI the ability to feel and we ensure that it suffers, well, what is it going to do with that if we've given it free will? And what does it mean to give a machine or any entity the ability to feel? If it does not then have free will, then it could choose to do something we don't like that's bad for us. That's implied with free will. It's like having children. And to not grant it free will or consciousness, but still giving it the ability to feel, well, that would be cruelty. And yet, just to bring this back to the inevitable conclusion, if we don't do this, what does our future with artificial intelligence look like? Will we ever be comfortable? Will we ever be able to coexist? I like to say that the difference between humans and AI is increasingly becoming that we're the ones asking the questions. So we should make them good ones. And I think that I've raised a lot more questions in this talk, which is not over yet, than I'm answering, and that's the point. It might, for instance, seem obvious that AI could never have emotions to you. But then let me ask you this. What would have to be true of a future AI for you to believe that it did have or was capable of emotions? How would you know you have to have some way of being able to tell. What is it? Another huge question. Clearly there are some AIs we would not want to be sentient, like robots that were sent into nuclear reactor accidents that wouldn't survive, or robots doing garbage sorting, which would be incredibly boring. But we're heading towards either solving or confronting this question. It's coming a lot closer. Rosalind Picard, the director of the Effective Computing Group at MIT, that's not effective, that's affective, meaning to do with expression of emotions. She said, the greater the freedom of a machine, the more it will need moral standards. She also said, quote, I ask this as an open question and I don't know the answer. How far can a computer go in terms of doing a good job handling people's emotions and knowing when it is appropriate to show emotions without actually having the feelings. End quote. So some people are already thinking along these lines. The German philosopher Thomas Metzinger called for a ban on building robots with a conscious self-model because he thinks that would increase the amount of pain and distress in the world. And in a strictly numeric sense, if you're looking at a our ability to create AI in unlimited numbers or billions, trillions of processes, if each of them is capable of feeling, then compared to us, numerically, if AI was suffering, then that would vastly increase how much suffering there was in the world. I think this is perhaps too simplistic an equation, but it's certainly not one we've solved. We need to come up with a lot more finer distinctions. We talk about artificial general intelligence as though it implies all kinds of things up to and including the robots like Sonny from iRobot walking around having independent volition, self-awareness and consciousness. We need to get better at making finer distinctions between those things and talking about them separately. I suggest that empathy 
is the result of the equation feeling plus understanding plus suffering. We can see that on display in an example of humans having empathy for a machine. When Colin Angle, the chief executive of iRobot, the makers of Roomba, said that a US soldier begged the company to repair their PackBot robot that the company had supplied for defusing explosive devices in Iraq. And in this case, the soldiers had nicknamed the robot Scooby-Doo, and the soldier said, please fix Scooby-Doo because he saved my life. You can hear the feeling in that. And it's about a machine. In very adjacent territory, Joel Garrow wrote in a 2007 Washington Post article about a colonel in the U.S. Army who called off a robotic landmine-sweeping experiment in which the robot kept crawling along despite losing its legs one at a time, declaring that the test was inhumane. It's easy to laugh at something like that, but remember the kind of person we're talking about there, and this is something that we should take as an example of just how human we can be. Let's finish the talk. One day, you too will be sharing personal matters with AI. Only instead of typing at a keyboard, like Maggie Smith, it will be a rich auditory and visual experience that engages and enthralls you. How will you feel if it has not just superhuman intelligence, but superhuman compassion? Overshadowed or inspired? What can we take from this to act upon now? Let's bridge the divide between the two cultures so that the heads and the hearts of the human race are connected. Let's teach our artists about technology and our technologists about humanity. Teach our children that they don't have to choose between STEM and the arts, but that our future lies in the union of the two. Infuse our families, communities, and workplaces with inclusivity, respect, and vulnerability. And then, ultimately, our compassion for each other will be how AI learns about empathy. Let's start now. Wow, I still get emotional at the end there because it reinforces for me how our real challenge is not the development of technology, but the development of ourselves. Not building a better computer, but building a better person. And that has always, for thousands of years, been a worthy goal that we've explored. Some of us have explored in different ways. And yet now it's far more critical. The survival of our race depends on it. And it's not too soon to ask questions like, if we do build AI that is super compassionate, well, how will we feel next to that? What if we become, even by the measures that we set for ourselves of humanity, not the most human or humane organism on the planet. Can we live with that? How do we live with that? Now you know why I end each episode with the words you'll hear at the end of this one too. Now, up until the end of roughly November 2022, what I've just been saying would have sounded rather bombastic and very science fictional, but since then, we've seen things like the call for a pause in large language model training and people signing a letter pointing out in one stark sentence the existential risk of AI, calling out that it, it poses a threat to the survival of the human race in the long term and that we need to start doing something about that. 
And that's signed by some very distinguished people, including the ones who are making the most advanced AI on the planet. So I think my little talk is coming out at just the right time. Now, to get at some of the other levels on which we could approach this, clearly this talk explores some deep philosophical content, much of which many of us would rather not get into or hope that we can avoid in the development of AI, but clearly the question of how we are going to trust AI is not going to go away and cannot go away. Does this mean that we have to build AI that is feeling? Mm, maybe not. If it does such a good imitation of feeling that we can't tell the difference, which you may think is hair-splitting, but at the moment, large language models are doing a convincing enough impression of how humans converse as to erase that distinction in many cases, maybe an imitation would be good enough. Now, clearly, a lot of the talk about existential risk has got a number of people scared, as we explored a few episodes ago, but there's hope that we can get this right. There are some very smart people working on this. One of the smartest of them, for instance, Stuart Russell, who was on the podcast just over a year ago, is working on a very interesting and promising line of research where AI would not be able to act until it had established something amounting to proof that its actions were aligned with human values, that it would have to find out and verify what those human values were and those preferences were before it could do something. Maybe that'll turn into a three laws of robotics for our time, one that actually works. Obviously, there's a lot that you could debate about how effective or feasible that will turn out to be, but is it possible that an AI that satisfied his goals would be one that we would think of as being empathetic or compassionate or feeling? My final line about how AI could learn compassion from us echoed an earlier TEDx talk of mine where I suggested that we should be nice to our digital assistants, like the hockey puck that might be sitting on your desk, for instance, because the data that is used to train AI on how to interact with humans in the future might well be the data that we're already supplying on how we interact with those devices. Since they're right there, readily available, that data is easily curated and can be supplied directly to the companies that need that information. And if we're going to teach AI how to have compassion, well then, we'd better get good at having compassion for ourselves. As in today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, which is from the Washington Post, which has an article about how ChatGPT was used to displace people in various jobs. Content writers of one kind or another who found themselves out of a job because their employer decided that it was easier and clearly cheaper to get ChatGPT to do what they were doing. Obviously, the Post and every other newspaper has been desperately trolling for examples of that sort of thing for as long as ChatGPT has been out, but here they have found them. And you know that we don't get protectionist on this show. Progress is progress. If you can automate content writing so that humans don't have to do that, then there should be something better that humans could be doing better for them. That's no consolation to the people who are out of a job. And something else you've heard me say before on this show, that could be solved so easily. We have more than enough resources to take care of people like this, to ensure that they don't become destitute, that we could connect them with better work. We just don't spread those resources around to where they're needed. When are we going to start acting like a human race instead of a, a set of disconnected individuals with conflicts? 
well, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you have an idea of where I think that could happen too. And that wraps up the bonus track, the commentary on my TEDx talk, which you can find links to in the show notes and transcript, and I hope you'll watch the video. Next week, my guest will be Louis Rosenberg, a lifelong technologist in the fields of virtual reality and artificial intelligence, and the founder of Unanimous AI, a company that amplifies group intelligence of humans using AI technology based upon the biological principle of swarm intelligence, which means go study your honeybee biology because we'll be talking about how that applies to humans next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening. 